Hello, I'm Mary Schuster, and this is RamQuest Pandemic Practices Podcast. Welcome to this special edition of the podcast. We had an opportunity to supplement our standard pandemic coverage by featuring some broader industry topics. We'd love to hear from you regarding other topics you might want us to cover, and to do so, you can access a link to a special email address, which is contained in our show notes. Now, if you haven't yet checked out our show notes, you can find them in the details area of each episode. Here, producer Amy provides cool links and more information about things that come up during each discussion that you might like to know more about. Today, we bring you an interview with Mark Lowry, who is editorial director for October Research. Each year, October Research publishes their State of the Industry Report, which brings together viewpoints from many facets of industry issues. Mark oversees the company's five publications, and before joining the title report in 2017, he worked as a journalist for the Detroit Free Press, New York Newsday, and the Cleveland Plains Dealer. I always enjoy talking with Mark, who has a breadth and depth of knowledge regarding our industry. In today's conversation, we cover a wide array of topics, including what the Biden administration's CFPB will focus on, the state of the housing economy in 2021, fair lending issues, the possibility of nationwide interest rate caps for mortgages, credit reporting reforms, electronic closings, state regulations, and even postal banking. I hope you'll find something interesting in our discussion, and Mark will tell you how you can get your own copy of the 2021 State of the Industry Report. Mark, thank you for joining us on Pandemic Practices. Thank you for having me. We're so glad you're here. So I'm sure a lot of the listeners are like me who do not miss each edition of the State of the Industry Report, but I'm sure we have uh, maybe a few who aren't familiar with the publication. So let's start by talking generally about the publication, what it covers, what its content is, and what people can expect when they look at it. Sure. Well, our State of the Industry Report is a compilation of reports that come from each of our five different publications. So that would be the title report, Dodd-Frank update, RESPA news, the legal description, and valuation review. And we look at what's going on in each of those specific spaces. And so we, we do this annually and we launched this one late January. And I think what's really interesting is that for the last couple of years since we've been under, we were under a different administration, there wasn't a ton of different things. But this year and going forward, there's just going to be a ton of change. And let me just also say, and I'm sure we'll say it again, that that report is available for a free download. You can get that at the titlereport.com. So anyone who wants that can download that for free. That's great. And it gives such a wonderful overview of, to your point, all aspects of the industry. The folks from industry who contribute to that are some of the heaviest hitters. And I always look forward to seeing their take on not only how things are, but when they forecast ahead, what the market can expect. And I think probably a lot of people just clutched their chest when you said uh, accurately predicted that the industry is going to be going through quite a bit more change because this industry's all already been on the forefront of change with what they've had going on with the pandemic. But let's look beyond that a little bit. Give us an overview of the types of topics that you're covering in this year's report. Well, for instance, we always take a look at the economy. That is what our economists in our space are sort of talking about. Now, this wasn't covered, but in the last week or so, three of the big three underwriters have come out with their 2020 earnings reports. And what we see in those earnings reports is that most of them had improved sales. However, those sales were really predicated on refinances because we had a huge 
refinance Boone. And so one of the things we're looking at is what can we expect over the next 12 months? One thing about refinances is that the longer it goes on, the smaller the pool of people who can benefit from a refinance is. And so that won't last forever. The other question is, what will happen when all of these forbearance programs end? Now, we don't know the answer to that. So that was one thing we looked at. Another thing we looked at was, of course, change at Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Although the new head has not been confirmed yet, that's expected. He's a former FTC commissioner who had been confirmed by the Senate less than two years ago, so that there shouldn't be any issue there. But even now, the acting director has said that we can expect a lot more activist bureau going forward. Now, for a lot of folks, that won't make any difference, but for some folks, it may make a difference. Also, one of the things that we look at across all of the spaces is that this pandemic has accelerated the use of technology like nothing else in this space before. Because in order to continue to thrive, all sorts of things had to happen to allow closings to take place. And so an interesting aspect will be what will happen after this pandemic is over and believe me, I'm hoping that one day this will be over. Will those things that were put in place temporarily, will they be adopted permanently? What will happen that way? Also, from our legal publications, we're always looking at what's on the forefront in terms of legal cases that we should be looking at. There is a very interesting case that the CFPB is involved in now, and that's out of Chicago. It involves a small mortgage company called Townstone Financial. And Townstone actually has been accused of redlining and uh, violating the Equal Credit Opportunity Act. But what's interesting about that is essentially the Bureau is saying they violated this through their marketing efforts and through some radio shows by saying things that actively discouraged African-American applicants from applying. This is interesting because it's really an expansion of what the CFPB has been doing. And so there are just several things on the horizon this year that we couldn't say 12 months ago. Yes, there's a lot to look at. So let's dive down into some of those topics a little bit more. You mentioned the technology piece, which has been on a lot of people's minds right now. Obviously, with Ron and Ren, there are, what, about 27 states that have actual legislation in place, and most others have at least a temporary order signed by their governor. So what do you predict ahead with regard to Ron and Ren and when those temporary orders expire? Do you think they'll be extended? Do you think we'll see more harmony in the legislation? Give us that viewpoint, if you would. Unfortunately, it's going to be a state-by-state thing, which is why a lot of organizations in the space, including Alta, have advocated for federal legislation because it becomes problematic, especially for folks like yourself who are operating in 50 states. And so now you've got to tailor what you're doing to the specific guidelines in California and in New York and in Texas. And sometimes they're similar and sometimes they're not. And so I think some of the states are going to say, you know, this makes a lot of sense and we ought to make this permanent. But I think for some of the states, it's going to be a regression. For some reason, a lot of the states, they just have said, you know, we do it this way, but no one's really complained about it, and this is how we're going to continue to do it. I think one of the reasons that is, is because most of the new people who are buying a home, the millennials and that group, they've never bought a home before. And while they are used to a more technology-driven process and the things that they do, they have nothing to compare to. 
And so it's not like they're saying, why didn't this happen faster? They're just saying, this is what must be what happens when you close a home. And so that doesn't seem to be the impetus from there. However, there are disruptors who are showing that this is a better way of doing it. And I think that will drive things as much as uh, anything else. The rocket mortgages and the Quicken loans of the world, they're just saying, no, this is the way we're going to do it. I think eventually that is going to drag some other people along. Interestingly enough, we survey title agents and other people in the industry yearly, and we have a huge survey, Voice of the Title Agent, which we release the results of that in March. But what you generally find is that the title agents themselves, they believe that the pressure to go to e-closings they believe that that's driven by people other than the consumers. And they come along sometimes kicking and screaming. Agreed. And obviously during the pandemic, as you've mentioned, we did see a sharp increase in demand for some form of an electronic signing, but it was not as sharp as a lot of people had expected or some had hoped. And yes, with the exception of some lenders promoting it, a couple of them you specifically mentioned, we just don't see lenders actively promoting it. And we think, and, and some of those surveys from consumers have showed, they actually do want some electronic part of the closing process, but they're not aware that it's available to them because typically it's the lender who would be educating them as to those possibilities because the lender is in front of them with the application process. And so you're right, there's all this pent up emotional demand for some practical reasons and some just modern ways of doing business. But we just don't have all those spots in the supply chain kind of singing from the same hymnal, it sounds like. Yeah. But it's like anything else. Some things will happen that will suddenly force adoption. And you have people in our space who are like, I'm not going to wait till that happens. I'm going to be ahead of it. And then you have people who will say, you know what? I should have did this. I can remember well, I shouldn't say this because it ages me, but I can remember when companies didn't really even have websites. <laughs> and now you wouldn't even think about having a company doing anything now right. without a website. But I can remember when it was. <laughs> That's right. There were no websites. Yeah, and you're right. It, for a while, it was sort of a progressive, bleeding edge thing. And that happened well in advance of it becoming mainstream, right? Yes. Yeah, I think we're in for sort of a similar experience on that front as well. I think this is fascinating. You mentioned some fair lending issues, talked about the cases in Chicago. That's very interesting. And obviously, when it comes to lenders, it's easier to see a bright line there. But how might that also affect settlement agents in the future? That's a complicated question. I think it impacts them because a lot of the settlement agents have marketing service agreements, have all other sorts of co-partnerships with the lenders. And so it may have an impact on them marketing-wise. It may also have an impact on them just in more respite-related issues because the information that we have from those who are coming into place in Washington is that they're going to be taking a look at a lot of different things. And I think you want to make sure that at least in your marketing and in your other things, you're not drawing the unwanted attention from not just the CFPB, but a lot of states are now moving into what they saw as a void when the CFPB was a little less active than it had been, say, under the Obama administration. And so you saw states like New York and California who were saying, OK, you know what? We're going to get into this space. 
And so once you give a lawyer a business card, they're going to have to find something. So you better, <laughs> you better watch what you're doing. Mm-hmm. You suppose someone could take the view that, for example, not having interpreters for consumers who speak a different language, do you feel like that could be a like kind discouragement as is being looked at in the Chicago market? I think it could be, but I also think perhaps the way to look at it isn't from a uh, punitive point of view, but a way of saying, how can I ban what I'm doing and make it embracing to everyone? And what's the business case for doing that? What's the return on investment for doing that? No different than you see a lot in Florida, but a lot of the settlement agencies, they're big in having bilingual folks and different things like that. And Some people could say, you know what, if you're going to want to buy a house, you're going to have to deal with a settlement agent and you'll figure it out. Others would say, you know what, this is a way for me to expand my business, to let people in this community know that we're going to make it as easy for you as possible. So I think the best way to look at it is sort of what is the return on investment on this? What is the business case for doing that? Also, I just think having seen the example in in a lot of other industries that a lot of times a corporation isn't quick to do something if they don't see the business return on it. And if you can show them the business return on this, you're going to make money because there are people in this community who buy homes. So I think if you can look at it from that ROI standpoint and take out the, is this morally right or morally wrong to do, that it moves a little quicker. Agreed. The report also talks about data privacy and data security emerging in the thought space and the things we need to be giving attention to. Talk us through a little bit on that topic, would you? That is huge because a lot of the agencies, not just the CFPB, but others are looking at this whole issue of data privacy. We're very good at collecting a lot of information about a lot of different things. And Often you're not even aware of what you are kind of consenting the use for that is. And so a lot of people, and I think California is probably at the forefront of this, is saying, okay, what can you use this for? What can you not use it for? The problem that it's causing in our industry is that there are no standards across the 50 states. And so what you can do in in California and can't do is going to be different in Arkansas. And that is a problem because now someone like RamQuest or someone else has to now tailor that solution to 50 different states. But groups like Alta are saying like, yeah, we get it. There needs to be some protections in place, but let's do this in a sort of way that makes sense. That isn't a undue burden on businesses, but that is a huge issue. All of that information that's being gathered, what it's being used for, how can you opt out of it? How can you opt into it? So I think we're going to see in this next four years, some more legislation that deals with that. I'm not necessarily sure that we're going to like what we see. It's sad, but I think sometimes we wonder why like-minded people on both sides of the aisle can't get together and say, what makes sense? And why does it always have to be from one extreme or the other or driven by a mistake? You know, as you know, one of our companies had a data breach a couple of years ago. There's still ongoing consequences from that, both on the federal level and in New York. It's a problem. I don't think any of our companies purposely says, you know, we, we want to be breached or we want to have this or that. But sometimes the, the technology moves quicker than the protections do. And then also there's I'm dealing with some third party providers and I've got to also ensure 
that they're protecting the information that they have access to. And so I don't think any company says, you know what, we want to have this huge breach that's going to give us adverse publicity and we'll be fighting against for years. But again, I think sometimes the technology moves quicker than the protections move and that can cause a problem. Let's talk a little bit about the CFPB. You mentioned them in the beginning. What kinds of things do you expect we can see from a Chopra-led CFPB? Well, they have already indicated to us that, in their words, they're going to rescind what they called some of the more business-friendly policies of the last administration, and that they're going to be a lot more activists than they have been. However, under Craninger, there weren't as many enforcement actions, but there really were quite a bit of collections, which kind of gets lost in the shuffle. I think that if you are a settlement company and you're doing things above board, then you really don't have anything to worry about. I say that with a caveat because one of our publications, RESPA News, deals with cases that are dealing with RESPA law, but it is full of stories about less than straightforward arrangements between settlement companies <laughs> and lenders and their cases that are made their way to federal courts, although not through the CFPB. And so if you're operating above board, you shouldn't have anything to worry about. What I hope we don't see is under the auspices of Richard Cordray, I think the complaint was the enforcement method was kind of a gotcha method. That is, instead of pointing out to folks, you know, this is a little bit of a problem, why don't we correct it? <laughs> it seemed more interesting than saying, I gotcha, and then uh, embarrassing folks. And that's not to say that bad players don't need to be policed and they don't need to and they don't need to redress consumers. But it is to say that the whole focus under Craninger was a bit different. And that was let's provide guidance to avoid the problem in the first place or make kind of uh, delicate course directions. You know, I heard somebody once say that if you're in a huge ship, you can't turn it around really quick. You have to just kind of like make small course directions to get where you're going. And I think all business kind of prefers that. That is, if we're doing something and we're not aware of it, let us know. Give us a chance to correct it. But the problem is, if you're not a big company and if you some kind of way get into the sights of the CFPB, just that legal battle alone is going to really be a problem. You know, you could fight them for a couple of years and come away with a reasonable settlement, but you've paid millions in legal fees. And so, you know, I think all business wants to avoid that. We live in a country where we've got all sorts of agencies that are doing uh, all sorts of things to protect people, to protect the environment. And we ought to be thankful for that. But there has to be some reasonableness about mm -hmm. it also. Yes, you're right. And I think an outcome from some of the differing types of enforcement through the short history of the CFPB, wasn't it intended earlier on to have some mechanical things in place that would result in it being viewed from a less partisan perspective? Yes and no. I think, you know, when you look back at the folks who were really, really instrumental in that Dodd-Frank legislation, talking about people like Senator Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, and others who they've done a lot of good, but they were pretty clear after the 2008 happened, there were a lot of people looking to blame. And now granted, there was a lot of blame to go around, but just the whole methodologies change. You know, when we talk about the CFPB and we talk about the, the structure of it and how it might better be served as a bipartisan committee as opposed to a director sort of situation, that's where that argument really comes in. And that is, you don't really have that activist thing. It's more of a consumer-focused 
We want to get it right, but there's no axe to grind, so to speak. But while you know, folks like Ulta and other folks are advocating that bipartisan setup, I don't see that happening. I agree with you. Also in the State of the Industry report, there was a discussion on postal banking and many people might not be familiar with that as a concept. So would you like to talk through that a little bit? I know a little bit less about that than the other subjects, but one of the problems considering what your viewpoint is, but one of the things people are questioning is, do we really want to set up a federal competitor to people who are in this space already? There's a problem of the, but there's also the question of, and again, I hope this doesn't come off the wrong way because there's no place that I'd rather live than where I am now, but does the government really do anything better than the private sector? And does that make a ton of sense? You know, would the efforts be better focused on straightening out the post office, which oh, don't get me started. Some kind of way in the last six months just got screwed up. You know, I put my stamp on my letter, and two days later, uh, someone in California has it. And that's my whole lifetime. That's worked. Suddenly, in the last six months, that's not worked anymore. And so, I think the question would be. Competition questions aside, would it be better for the government to just pursue laws, regulation, and guidelines that encourages lenders to meet these needs that the postal banking would meet? For those that aren't familiar, is the postal banking is essentially a concept of we have citizens who are underserved by private lenders and so sort of creating a, hopefully not system through the post office, but... <laughs> That's just as though anyone can be serviced by the post office. Anyone can be serviced by postal banking. Is that generally the concept? Yes, but here's the problem with that. Remember a couple of years ago, well, it was more than a couple of years ago, it was about a decade ago, there was this huge splash because guess what? They were going to start having banks inside of the Walmart and inside of the supermarkets. And this was going to be this great thing because people who didn't have bank accounts would now have bank accounts because it was available at the Walmart or at the Giant Eagle. They found out a couple of things. One is that banking relationships, they last for decades. And so I wasn't going to run to the Walmart and switch my banking account uh, from someone who I've been banking with over decades and different banks, not because I switched, but because different banks got bought out and it didn't make a ton of sense. And the other thing is, if you go into Walmart and you make the mistake of doing that on a Friday or Saturday, they've got this customer service line and it'll be practically out of the door of people who are paying an absorbent amount of money to have somebody else cash their check instead of just having that check deposited direct into the deposit for no money at all. And so maybe the better idea would be just educational campaigns to show folks that, you know, there's a better way of doing this. You know, no one should be you know, getting a paycheck and you know, spending five, six, seven bucks just to cash that paycheck. It doesn't sound like a lot of money, but most folks say, well, why would I do that? The money just goes right in my account and, and I get free checking because it goes right into my account. And again, the other question is, does anybody really have any confidence that the government is going to be able to do this better than private lenders? Not that there wouldn't be a sincere effort to do this, but it's harder, I think, for them to do some things that private business can do. And I think they ought to just encourage more people to kind of get into that space. And I get it. Also want to do away with the payday lenders and those folks also. But some people argue that there's a need for them. 
I'm certainly not going to make that argument, but some will make that argument. Mm -hmm. Well, in sort of relation to that different topic, but you talk about this in the report too, the concept being discussed of perhaps a nationwide interest rate cap. Tell us what you know about that. It's being discussed. I think it's a non-starter. It's going to be hard to do. And you already have that in some states, which is why so many corporations are based in places like Delaware, because the cap is higher. But to your question, if we decided as a nation that we need that, it has to be federal because what happens is it puts different places at a disadvantage. When we have these kind of hodgepodge of laws where you can do it one way in New York, but a different way in California and Texas, it really puts businesses at a disadvantage. And so I do think that the concept of addressing it on a federal level makes sense, but it has to be federal. And the problem is, I just don't think that there's a political will to do that. The Biden administration has also talked a little bit, and you cover it wonderfully in the report, about credit reporting reform. What do you know about that? That I think we are going to see action on that front within the next couple of years. There's several problems. One problem is getting things corrected on your credit report. It just takes forever. The other problem has just been disputing different things. And so I think that is going to happen. I think there is the will to get that done. And I think it may get done in the next two years. I say that because the current administration has a voting block now. What will happen after the next congressional election is a whole different question. They have to kind of focus on what is it that we need or we want to get done while we have 50 votes in the Senate, while we have a majority in the House, because the pendulum has a way of swinging. You know, there was so much optimism in some circles following the election of Barack Obama, and they had a period of time where they had votes to do things. But like parties tend to do, they couldn't get out of their own way. And so after two years, that switched. And so we essentially saw six years of just gridlock. And so I think the current administration has that little leeway right now. Who knows what's going to happen in two years? So I think some of these policies we're going to see kind of rushed why there is the kind of voting block to do that. Another very interesting one is, as you know, there's a ton of debate right now about student loan reform. As somebody who is uh, paying off one of my son's loans. You follow that one very closely? <laughs> I follow that really closely because every, every month when I, I send out that check. <laughs> but I think in these next two years, we may see some things done in terms of credit reporting reform. Whether or not those other things come to fruition, I don't know. But there are a lot of people who have said, you know what, we have a chance now to do some things, whether those things fall into the scope of things you support or not, it'll be interesting to see. It's always so interesting with a new administration. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that while the CFPB under the previous administration took a more relaxed enforcement position and we had a lot of states accelerate theirs and we started to see a lot going on at state level regulations do you think now if we have a more vigorous, for lack of a better word, CFPB, do you think those state level regulations and enforcements will start to decrease or do you think that they will continue on in tandem with increased enforcement from the Bureau? I think in the large states, they're going to continue on in tandem, you know, the New Yorks, the Californias. I think in the other states, 
they're just not equipped to establish that sort of investigative bureau. It takes a lot of resources, a lot of money. And the elephant in the room is that states are going to be facing all kinds of shortfalls, pandemic related. And so what am I going to do now? Am I going to severely cut back services? My tax revenues are down. All sorts of things are down. And can I really embark on trying to create another agency of all things? And so I think the answer for a lot of states is going to be no. We just don't have the money to do it right now. So with regard to sort of your forecast outlook for the housing economy, say over the next year, how do you see interest rates shaping up? How do you see the, in many cases, lack of inventory changing or staying the same? You did mention the refis that have been predicated on borrowers who can still benefit from that and synthesize all that together and tell us what you see ahead for the economy as it relates to housing. Well, I can tell you what economists are telling us, and though you know their forecasts will change quarterly, but telling us a couple of things. As far as interest rates, they're expecting them to pretty much stay where they are, maybe inch up a little bit by the end of the year. As we mentioned before, I don't think we'll see as many refinances as we saw in 2020, just because the pool of people who can benefit from a refinance is steadily shrinking. However, I think If you are selling a house, you need to be doing it now for a couple of different reasons. One, because that supply is so low, bidding wars are out of the world right now. Most houses are selling above their price. And I saw something from Redfin the other day that said that uh, they're selling within two weeks. And so if you're selling something that's in shape and has been maintained, you're going to have an easy time of doing that right now. But here's the thing. Our government has done a wonderful job of doing what it can to keep people in their houses during this pandemic through forbearance programs. Those are not going to last forever. At some point, the forbearance programs are going to end. We know what happened in 2006 or 2008. What happened was our markets were flooded by foreclosed homes. That had the impact of pulling prices down. Nobody wants to see that. The good news, again, is if you have a house to sell, this is probably the time to sell it. Bad news is there's not going to be a lot of inventory for you to look at. We all know people who have purchased a home before they sold their homes, which we now know is probably a very bad idea. Unless you're going through one of those iBuying services that are going to guarantee that they're going to sell your home at a certain price, then that takes some of the risk out of that. If you're selling a home, it's a real good time right now. We don't know what's going to happen with those forbearance programs, how many homes are going to come on the market, which is not going to be a good thing. The government has a very delicate balancing act that it's trying to do right now, and that is stimulate the economy so that people who have some kind of way lost jobs can plug back in in a way that they don't lose what they've had. Thank God we live in a country that's something that we want to do, but we all know that that's not going to work for a lot of people. At some point, I saw a report the other day that said foreclosures were as low as they had been in maybe a decade. I think it was even longer than that. But we know that not that there aren't properties to be foreclosed on. It's just that courts have put them on a halt right now. They said, stop for it. Now let's pause. That pause is going to end at some point. 
And if you're selling, it's probably a better idea to sell now than wait. The other thing is a lot of the title companies back in 2008, 2006, they enhanced their operations so that they could deal with REOs as much as they could deal with the regular sale. Most are able to kind of switch focus and do that. Some more so than others. The housing market is in good shape right now. I don't think anybody can tell us what it's going to look like in nine months from now. It was very interesting, something you mentioned in that response about when these homes do come off of their forbearance period, whenever that is, if their existing owner can sort of reclaim them, get caught up, it's fine. If they do come on the market en masse, there are a few markets right now that would probably say, great, we could use the inventory. However, in a softer market, and we don't know what the economy will be in a few months either, to your point, we think it's going to come out strong, that we're all planning and trying to make that happen, but we don't know. So typically when that has happened in the past, like in the 2008 scenario, the folks who stepped up and purchased those inventory tended to be cash buyers and they tended to be investors and landlords. Well, now you have had investors, landlords unable to collect rents. And so they've taken a hit as well. So we're not sure what that ecosystem is going to look like in the future. Is that fair? Yeah. And there's another aspect that we're not even considering. One of the things that this pandemic has shown a lot of corporation is, guess what? We don't need as much commercial space as we used to have because a ton of our people can work from home. And so that is going to have a lasting impact. You've got four or five floors in this downtown building in Pittsburgh, and you're now thinking, do I really need four floors? And so that's going to have an impact. HUD and some other agencies are looking at what they can do to encourage the conversion of some commercial space to residential space, but that's not going to happen overnight. And that's going to be a problem because if we have an inability to move commercial space, or as much of it as we're used to, plus a ton of properties coming up uh, in the market, REO properties, that's going to be a problem. The other thing is that when you look at a lot of urban places after 2008, they had very aggressive sort of land banks that got into the business of trying to clear title to a property so they could be moved. Because just because the property is there, doesn't mean that you can get the title to it quickly. And so they had to readjust to learn how to do that. Detroit is probably the best example of that, where they just set up this sort of thing where they worked with certain title companies and certain underwriters. And so they could move this property quicker than a lot of other properties, because we know that that property sits there and it sits there for months before someone even acknowledges that it's there. And that drives down neighborhoods, that drives down prices. We should all be hoping we can come out of this pandemic in a way that keeps people in homes as long as they can be in those homes. Also, that can plug people back into jobs. You know, it's one thing for that professional who lost a job, who, who maybe gets it back, who can kind of lump those missed payments on the back of the mortgage. It's another thing if you don't have a job, you're not lumping the payments anywhere and you still have to go someplace to live. And so I don't know how this is going to end up. Fortunately, we have the benefit of you guys um, on the scenes with your reporting, and we'll continue to watch this all closely. And this year's report, I thought, was especially good. Mark, was there anything that you wanted to touch on today that we haven't covered yet? Uh, no, we've covered quite a bit. I just would remind folks that State of Industry report that we keep referring to, you can download it for free, and you can get that at thetitlereport.com. And so take advantage of it, download it. 
uh, share it with friends. It's a terrific resource. It really is. Thank you. Thanks for listening today. And we look forward to your feedback on what you'd like to hear more about here on the pod. Also, if you'd like to be in touch directly with Mark, his email address is mlowry, that's L-O-W-E-R-Y, at octoberresearch.com. Until next time, stay well, be safe, and don't ever forget, what you do really matters.